All right, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 3, please. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, and the message is entitled, A Voice in the Wilderness. Uh, There has never been a greater need to preach the Word of God more boldly than in the present day in our nation. With the power of the Holy Spirit to convict the heart of man. Such is the ministry of John the Baptist, dynamic, convicting, and uncompromising. Matthew here gives us a vivid picture of the ministry of John through a threefold lens. Let me um, read verse uh, 1 through 12. He says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed with camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions round about the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not think to say in yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For as I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse, um, clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Matthew gives to us this vivid picture, the ministry of John the Baptist, a three-fold lens. First, we have the identity of John, verse 1 through 4. Secondly, we have the identity of the people hearing John, verse 5 through 7. And then we have the identity of false and true repentance by John in verses 8 through 12. He begins by giving us here the identity of John, 1 through 4. Notice in verse 1 and 2. The particulars about the person of John are given to us. The occasion of the appearance of John is indicated by the phrase, in those days. Um, The last recorded incident is when uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus uh, returned from Egypt to Nazareth in chapter 2, verse 22 through 23. Jesus was at least two years old when he fled to Egypt. It could be a little bit more, but at least two years old because of uh, Herod's edict. Uh, They returned after Herod's death. Uh, the spring of um, 4 B.C., uh, Matthew 2, 19 through 20, gives us that date. And Jesus could have been four to five years old at this point, somewhere around there. It's hard to tell because the calendars have been messed up by the first calculation, three, four years, stuff like that. Um, the time now is 30 years after the birth of John and Jesus. Remember, John is six months older. Okay, they're cousins. Um, Luke one twenty six tells us that. And Jesus was 12 years old when he was in the temple in Luke 2, 41 through 46 uh, or so. 
And then Jesus at this point is 30 years old when he begins his ministry. Luke gives us that in chapter 3, verse 23. Um, Luke 3, 1 and 2, in fact, tells us that this was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar between August of 28 AD and August of 29 AD, somewhere there. So it's 30 years, regardless of how the calendars have been done, it's 30 years by the record of Luke that Jesus started his ministry. So therefore, John is equally 30 years old. He's six months older. Now, notice verse 1. The designation about John is given. John the Baptist. That's how he's designated. His name is given to him by his father, but his father was commanded by Gabriel the angel in Luke one thirteen to call him John. In fact, uh, no one was named John in his family. And in Luke chapter 1, 60, 63, they all objected. And then they, he was dumb. He couldn't speak. They gave him a tablet. He wrote John. They're all surprised. John. And there are many people who have been given names by God directly. Uh, Solomon had two names. Uh, Solomon was not his first name. There's another one, Jedediah, uh, and other kings. Now, the name John means uh, Yahweh is gracious uh, giver or gracious giver. Beautiful name. Uh, and truly, God was a gracious giver to bring John along to be the forerunner, we'll see, of the Messiah. Um, the word Baptist describes what he was known for at that time. He was catching people's eyes because this was not customary. And John was known as uh, administrating this rite of baptism, um, a baptizer literally, and it was in the Jordan River that he was doing this. Mark 1.5 makes that very clear as well as others. And John was of the priestly family, remember. Uh, but he was called by God for a special task as the forerunner of the Messiah. Again, Luke chapter 1 through 3 gives us a lot of specific things and goes back earlier than any other of the gospel. And um, John was a Nazarite also, we're told. Um, and Jesus says that he was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he says, all did prophesy until John the Baptist. Jesus will make some comments later on in chapter 11, 9 through 13. Luke one fifteen and 7.27 puts it all together. And so here, um, he's up on the scene. There's been 400 years of silence, remember, okay? All of a sudden, the voice of God we're going to hear here. No, notice here, the occupation of John is stated also. He says he came preaching. The word preaching is caruso. We've talked about this word before. It means a herald to proclaim public announcements. Uh, a herald was hired by the king or the magistrates or whoever wanted to make proclamations. That person um, uh, did not bring their own message, but the message was given to them. It wasn't their own. The uh, authority was not theirs. So it was vested to them. They were not responsible for the people's response to the proclamation. They were only responsible for making the proclamation accurate. And the same is with the gospel. It is not our message has been given to us. We don't have the authority in ourselves invested to us. And we're not responsible for the people's response to the gospel. We are only responsible to make the proclamation very important. And so here now notice the location um, that John was preaching is in the wilderness of Judea here in verse 1. The desert of Judah, south of Jerusalem. Some of you have been with us. You go over the Judean wilderness. You start out. You go down. It's north of the Dead Sea. And you end up on the Jordan River. Jordan, of course, is on the other side. Now, John also was baptizing in um, Enon near Salim. Uh, John 3.23 tells us. And he tells us why. 
because there was much water there. Now, it's interesting, as you read some of the commentators, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, baptism, really, you can't prove immersion from here or sprinkling, any kind will do. Well, why did John say, because there was much water there? Why does the Bible say, and Jesus came up out of the water? So, when you read commentators, I don't care if they have PhDs, DMDs, or whatever, okay? doesn't matter. You judge their commentary by what the Bible says. You put a circle across them, a slash, and say, no, wrong. That's what my commentaries have. Yes, no, good, bad, all kinds of stuff. You go to the scriptures and judge what people say about the scriptures by the scriptures. Very, very important. Now, the proclamation of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message, repent. We've gone through this word. A change of mind that brings about a change of life through a relationship to Jesus Christ. There's a big difference in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 where Paul says that um, uh, those people who have godly repentance, they're glad. They don't regret having repented. They're glad they repented because they brought a change of life to their life. But those who only regret their sin and not really see the sin against God... They get over their tears, their emotions, the next week, the next month, they're back at it again. And it brings forth death, right? So there's a big difference between true biblical repentance that, that uh, causes you to see your guilt against God, your sin against God first, then with persons or against persons, than from just regret, which is really an emotional tandem fit for the consequences. I got busted, got thrown in jail, I'm pregnant, I got to pay $10,000, whatever it may be. There's a big difference. Now, we are to see ourselves as in sin, separated from God, um, unfit for heaven, literally. Um, acknowledging one's sin, confessing one's sin, and abandoning one's sin. And if possible, whenever possible, make some restitution when need. Now, it's not always possible, and that's not always wise to try to make restitution because you can mess up more things, okay? So you have to pray to the Lord for that wisdom. Um, repentance is the heart of the gospel. You remove repentance, you have no gospel. Okay? None at all. Now, the message is, notice, of the kingdom marked by reality and urgency. The kingdom of God is at hand. The phrase indicates the rule of God over the earth promised to the Jews uh, and the nation bringing in Judgment. That's why the disciples kept asking Jesus all the time, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time, even after the resurrection? They never saw the church age. They thought he was going to go and knock off Rome and set up the kingdom. Now, the term is unique of Matthew 32 times, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is broader and encompasses all of God's creation. The kingdom is both present and yet to come, like an eclipse. When Jesus came, they joined. And since he left, it's moving forward to the second coming. It's an eclipse. When it's fully eclipsed, then we'll come back with Jesus to set up the kingdom. All right? So the kingdom's present and yet to come. The church is not the kingdom, yet it's part of the kingdom. The church will not bring in the kingdom, but will return with Jesus to set up the kingdom. There's a lot of kingdom theology today being taught from very popular preachers and teachers. They're off the wall. There's no such thing taught in Scripture. 
the church will never set up the kingdom. And so through the 90s and that, we're saying, well, let's take back territory and, and claim it, take it from Satan, you know, where it's ours and wherever your foot treads. And, and you know, we got to put Christians in politics and, you know, we're going to gain it all back. We're going to bring in the kingdom. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. You know why California is a blue state, right? It lacks oxygen. Okay? What's the same with the kingdom theology? All right? And every message is about the kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Man, you're putting a square peg in a round hole. All over the place. Now notice in verse 3 and 4, the particular prophetic connection to John. In verse 3, John was fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. John indicated the inspiration of prophecy. Listen. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The prophecy was uttered 700 years before. He's quoting the Septuagint. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Much of, uh, of uh, Matthew, all of it, in fact, is from the Septuagint. So this 400 years of silence has been broken. John is declaring that God has been faithful to send his son, the seed of the woman, according to the scriptures. Genesis 3:15, Isaiah 7:14, and Matthew 1.23 confirmed all those scriptures and more. Now notice John quoted the passage as fulfilled prophecy. This is important. Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is the key thing in Matthew. We're going to count the prophets as we go by. Fulfillment. He was to be the forerunner of Messiah, the voice in the wilderness, to prepare the commencement of the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In the power and the spirit of Elijah, Luke one seventeen says. So, John's the Baptist coming is twofold. The power and spirit of Elijah and to prepare the way. Okay? But in the power and the spirit of Elijah, that's a double prophecy of Elijah. John the Baptist fulfills part of it, and then literally Elijah during the Great Tribulation. Twofold. Now, notice the reference to make his path straight is the custom of the day where someone of very great importance would come in and then they would go out to the roads, everybody go out to the roads and they would uh, smooth the valleys and, 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 and the mountains and make the roads safe and comfortable for them to travel on. Someone of importance. Jesus is coming. Someone of great importance, the Messiah. Very, very clear here. Now, the other three Gospels also record this prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verse 3. Now, when the Bible quotes one, one passage one time, but when it keeps repeating, especially in all the Gospels, then it's interesting here. All four of them have this, the fulfillment. It's a very important prophecy regarding the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus identifies John as the forerunner. Uh, in, in chapter 11 of Matthew, of verse 10, he says, For this is he... Of whom it is written, Behold, I said my mess I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So you have um, Isaiah forty verse three, and he blends it also, integrates it with Malachi four five. The two are joined together. Now look at verse four. John was um, after the order of Elijah, the prophet, uh, not only in the spirit and the power, but also he dressed like Elijah. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. So he's kind of like a hippie, okay? Uh, old-time hippie here. Um, camel's hair was very uncomfortable, uh, being very coarse. In fact, uh, 
Elijah is described as the following in 2 Kings 1.8, uh, as they were looking for him because God kept making, taking him, disappearing and bringing judgment and everything. He says, so they answered him, a hairy man is the one we saw wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And so you have this parallel between uh, the prophetic aspect of uh, Elijah and John the Baptist uh, also in dress here. Notice he ate uh, off the land and his food was locusts and wild honey. A locust, certain locusts were allowed to be eaten in Leviticus 11.22 and they would tear off the legs and then roast the body and eat them if they needed to. Protein, you know. Uh, well, my wife and uh, my daughter went to the fair with their nieces and my nieces were eating cockroaches. Uh, you know what I mean? They have chocolate-covered grasshoppers, cockroaches. What's the big thing? It's the same thing. They've always done it. Protein. Um, Paul says, you know, whatever you pray over, just pray over, eat it, forget it. You know, you like brains, you like tripas, you like heart, you like uh, tripe, you know, pray over it, eat it. That's it. Nothing unclean of itself. You may kill you sooner, but, you know, you can eat it. Um, some believe that the locusts here, though, are carob fruit. Um, and... and I'm not sure, so I give you both. Certainly, to have one or the other is no big deal. Um, either way, the whole message here is that he survived out in the wilderness. He was not a city man. Um, in fact, Jesus defends him as a very courageous man later on in chapter 11 because when he was thrown in jail, he sent some of the disciples, and, the, and, he, and Jesus knew that they were thinking in the crowds, oh, John's doubting. He said, what would you go out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? No. A king in fine clothing? No. Camel's hair. Leather. <laughs> and he exalts his cousin as one of the greatest, the, in fact, the greatest of the prophets. Yet he said, the least of you are greater than John the Baptist. Think about that. He closes the Old Testament prophet, not the canon, but the prophet. Okay? And John never did one miracle. Wow. Jesus defines greatness a lot different than we do in the church today. <laughs> Interesting. Amos was called a prophet. But was he at the beginning? Nope. He was a sheep breeder, a fruit picker, Amos 7.14. And so the same with John. John was of the priestly family. He was to be a priest. He never officiated, just like Ezekiel. They were both called to be prophets. What has God called you to do in the church? To teach the Word of God to the kids, junior high school, high school, um, street witnessing, missions, get involved with the deacons, with other things. There's so many things that go on here. And yet, God is the one who will call and direct and guide you as you seek him. Uh, I don't know what he's called you, but you have to go to him and see where you are. Uh, every part of your body is there for a purpose, and no one part body ever serves itself. It's there for the rest of the body. Very, very important. The illustration you can't miss. In fact, 1 Corinthians twelve eleven says, But one and the same spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills, sovereignly. 
He sovereignly chooses. I did not choose to be a pastor teacher. I did not choose to teach the word of God. I got saved. I got involved. I just started being involved in different things. And God began to direct my heart and guiding and open doors. And he put it together and confirmed my gift. Okay? He's the one that does it. Okay? We don't call ourselves. Prophecy um, is the strongest evidence that the Bible is the word of God. In fact, Two important scriptures you should know. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. You want to be a godly man and woman? Get in the Word of God. Stay in the Word of God, growing, studying. The other one is in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, the inspiration of Scripture that what you possess in your lap is inerrant and infallible, even as it's been recorded. Listen carefully. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, that of the Old Testament, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. I don't know why they interpret it like that, okay, or translate it like that. But that word private interpretation is really origin or impulse. Now, to show you that I'm being accurate, the rest of the verse tells you that. Listen, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or literally carried by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? So they didn't decide, well, I think I'll prophesy today. No, God anointed them and he carried along. And yet, uh, when they were done, they were normal people like you and I. Two important scriptures here. The word of God. You can trust it. Now, do you preach the gospel of repentance or a watered-down gospel? It's very important. A social gospel is powerless. A psychological gospel is deceptive. An emerging gospel is destructive. That's what's all going on today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come to you in excellency of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A crossless gospel is a useless gospel, a powerless gospel. You go to the cross, you will have to die. And the only way you can live is through the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. You are insufficient of yourself. You must be born again. Very, very clear. So the identity of John is a prophet of God. Notice secondly, verse 5 through 7, the identity of the people hearing John. In verse 5, the first group of people are described as coming from various regions. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions around Jordan went out to him. Jerusalem was the capital of the nation, as you know. Uh, Jerusalem means the, uh, to set you double peace, literally. Um, 776 times the most mentioned city in the Bible. It's the key city, the center of civilization according to the Bible, and it will be in the millennial kingdom. The capital, spiritual, religious, everything, government, everything. Jerusalem was the religious center of the Jews at that time. If you remember, the temple again of Solomon was there. It stood in Mount Sinai, that place. Um, we saw the rebuilding through Zechariah and then the temple had been beautified and enlarged the temple mount by Herod the Great 
um, at this point. Uh, Jerusalem was a city under the rule of a pagan Roman empire. Also, the Jews had no power of their own. They were subjugated. The Jews were ruled by an illegitimate king, Herod the Great, an Idumean. Have Jew, have Edomite. Judea would indicate Jewishness. That's what is meant here. This was the southern portion of the land of Israel on the west side of the Jordan, north of the Dead Sea. This distinguished them from Samaria, Galilee, Perea, and Idumea. Judea means he shall be praised. It comes from Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. In fact, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah after the priesthood of Melchizedek, not the Levitical order after Aaron. Okay? Now, all the regions round about indicates the non Jewish, the Gentile. This would be the villages on the east side of the Jordan, modern day Jordan today. These were people not welcomed by the Jews or in the city to an extent. So, from Jerusalem down to the Jordan, where he's baptized, about 20 miles or so. Now, notice in verse 6, the people were convicted of their sins and repented and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. The understanding was that those being baptized had responded to the gospel of John the Baptist. He proclaimed they responded that Jew and Gentile were both in need of repentance The crowds are out there, Jew and Gentile. They're hearing the gospel. Both were sinners before God. Both were under the wrath of God. This is what he's proclaiming. He's not watering it down. The rite of baptism, as you know, was not practiced upon the Jew, but only for the Gentile proselyte as they came into the Jewish faith. But John was baptizing um, Jew and Gentile in water, so this caught the attention What's going on? And the religious rulers were going to see it coming out. The evidence of true baptism or of true repentance uh, was that they were confessing their sins. The word confessing is ex homo logos. Ex out homo same logos to say. So what you're, 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 you're literally saying out loud and, and, and emphatically that you agree with what you're hearing. You're agreeing with God that you're a sinner, that you need repentance, you need forgiveness. This is what the word means. To agree with God that they were sinners in need of repentance. Both Jew and Gentile made this agreement to trust the Messiah, the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. John is the forerunner of this Messiah. Now look at verse 7. The people were confronted for their hypocrisy, the sharp contrast between the previous groups of people and those in this verse are as different as night and day. Listen to the words. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out, uh, coming to his baptism, the word but is an adversative conjunction, contrasting uh, those before and now them. 
those from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all around the regions around the Jordan um, who came out to John were sinners. Some repented, others did not, without doubt. That's always the case. By the way, it's not the majority who repents. It's the majority who rejects all the time. It's been estimated that many of these crusades put on, maybe one in a hundred remain, if that. So the majority always rejects the gospel. Now, these Pharisees and Sadducees were also sinners, but they didn't think they were. They weren't convinced. They were not agreeing with God or John. Pharisees were the separatists, the legalists, the ritualists of the law. Jesus gave them the name hypocrites from the old theater, the smile and the frown mask, putting a mask before you and being someone else. The Sadducees were the materialists, the rationalists, who believed only in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't believe in eternal punishment. What a nifty religion. They're both together. They're both in the Sanhedrin. Wow, what a mess. Now, the words of John, notice, were to rebuke them. He said to them, brood of vipers. John didn't call them vipers, but he said brood of vipers, which means children or offspring of vipers. They came from a long line of snakes. The implication being they were cunning, wicked sinners in religious garb. John was telling them they were related not to God, but to Satan. The fall came through the serpent as Satan presented himself as of carrying and being for Adam and Eve when it was not. Liars are crafty. It's like the affordable act. It's unaffordable. It's just the opposite. Okay? It's real simple. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and the desires are your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. John eight forty four. He was speaking to the Pharisees there. Notice the words of John were a stern castigation. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wow. John is not a little girl. He's not a sissy lala. He get in your face. He knows who he is. He knows what he's been called to do. He's not trusting in himself. He's not trying to impress anybody. He knows what God has called him to be and to declare. Do you know what God has called you to be and to declare? Very important. John knew they did not believe the message of repentance for their lives. The word wrath means the righteous indignation of God against sin and sinners due to his holiness. God must punish sin. His holiness demands his wrath. And his wrath is justified by his holiness. 
A God that does not punish sin can't be holy. Then he must be a liar. God is very, very consistent in his nature. As you know, two men were hung to the right and the left of Jesus, the two thieves on the cross, both equally distant, both equally guilty, both equally hearing all the insults, the reviling, and the words of Jesus as he prays to the Father and everything else. They both blaspheme him, revile him. Midday the one repents and rebukes the other. You and I, we deserve this thing. This man has done nothing amiss. Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. One made a decision for eternity with God. The other one to be separated from God, as we'll see. It was a choice. Both had equal opportunity. No one was at a disadvantage, nor will any person ever be able to say, God, you never gave me a chance. I can't tell you when, where, or how, but I can tell you, you'll be busted. Every mouth will be stopped. Nobody will say anything on Judgment Day for rejecting the gospel. The preaching of the gospel should never be um, selective in its audience. Too many today and their churches are laid after the, the latest church craze to try to be culturally relative, attempting to have certain percentages of minorities and racial groups. They are attempting to demonstrate their love and efficiency and effectiveness through the diversity and inclusiveness, but at the expense of not preaching the gospel. They're excluding sin and repentance often. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of it is. The church is to preach the gospel to all who come in to hear the gospel. Um, without respect to person as to who you are, the majority of a church or the major thrust of the church should not be to ensure balances of culture and races and colors and everything else. Whoever God brings in gets the gospel. Whoever repents in response to the gospel, they are brought into the church, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. He saves, not us. Today, it is an artificial church, which is really not the church of Jesus Christ that's going on. Pastors, elders, deacons, and people are to witness to the community, pray that God bring in people, and then preach the gospel and the Lord added to the church daily those that are being saved, Acts 2.47 says. I love it. There will always be one of two responses to the gospel, as I've said. You'll believe it and repent, or you're rejected by disbelief. Some will be good moral people. Others will be scarred with much sin in their life. Others, so-so. Some will be uh, financially well-off. Others, not so well-off. Some will um, be well-educated. Others, over-educated. Others, get by. 
None of these things matter. They're not the important factors. The common denominator is for that all people are sinners. And God will give them at least one chance because they are dead in trespasses and sins. Once again, I can't tell you when, where, or how, but I know God will give you at least one chance. I believe more than once, but at least one chance. So that whoever stands before him in the white throne judgment, and he says, why did you not receive me? Why did you reject me? They will never be able to say, I never heard about you. Not so. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but everlasting life, that means he died for the whole world. That means the whole world has to have at least one opportunity. If God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Second Peter 3, 9, that means that you'll have at least one opportunity. You're not going to find any one scripture to tell you that. But as you look to the whole of the message, you know that God will give at least once. Because if he doesn't, then he can't hold you responsible for it. And he would be unjust in his judgment of you or anybody else. Simple. The Bible is clear. Baptism cannot forgive sin. None at all. If you use some lava soap, you might get some dirt off. But uh, no sin. Um, Peter makes this clear. Listen. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, and he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and he preached to the spirit in prison, meaning when he died, he went down to hell, Sheol, the grave. The formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype, and now saves us. Listen, baptism, then in parentheses, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter 3, 18-21. So he takes the Noah flood, who believed the gospel, preached to them, that judgment coming, they got in the boat, Jesus went down, preached to them, here I am, the one that was talked about, they acted in faith, now those who act in faith, they act in faith on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died, he descended. But water is only the parallel, it's a type, but it doesn't take away any sin. It's an answer to good conscience. You believe the message of the gospel. So, no sprinkling, no immersion can remove any sin. Some people think they're going to be in heaven because they've been baptized. Not so. Listen to Paul. 1 Corinthians 1, 14-15. Paul affirms that water baptism does not um, save a person or remove sin. Thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Now, if baptism is required for salvation, then Paul is speaking blasphemous here. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, In Him you're complete, in Him those the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the sum total of deity, Jesus Christ, period. He said on the cross, it is finished, period. We practice baptism, we teach baptism. It's a public confession of what's happening in your heart, but it does not remove sin or complete your salvation. Is that clear? Very, very important. So, the identity of the people hearing John are sinners needing to repent. To be one with God. Jew Gentile. Religious, non-religious. Moral. Horrible sinners. Doesn't matter. Notice thirdly here. Verse 8 through 12. 
the identity of the false and true repentance by John stated here. In verse 9 and 10, the proclamation of John to the Pharisees and the Sadducees was to repent and flee from the wrath of God, his judgment. John said they needed a distinct change in their lives that only God could bring. Listen to his words. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. They couldn't do it on their own. The idea behind the word worthy has the idea of equal weights. Uh, when I used to work for Prano Market uh, in the 60s, uh, the weight measures uh, would come in and they would have the little weights to make sure that all our, our scales were right so we weren't ripping the people off. I don't even really do that today. Today, everything's whatever. Um, but um, equal weight is the idea. Repentance, again, the change of mind bringing about a change of life. So they are seen as equal balance. A change of mind about God and sin is balanced out by a life obeying God and not living for sin any longer. We're not talking about perfection, sinless, but you don't live the way you used to. Simple, okay? The evidence of repentance is called fruit, not works. Fruit is something that is produced naturally after its own kind. An orange tree gives oranges, confirming its genuine source and nature. doesn't produce strawberries. Simple. John warned them, notice, against self-deception. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. They were relying on their national heritage by Abraham. They were trusting their standing before God by their connection to Abraham. A lot of people are like that here on earth. You know, it's who they know and, and they write on their shirt tails and, you know, I know your dad and your son, this and that and, and, and all of this. And, and so people get hired and people get uh, open doors, not because they're able to do the job, but because who they know. Simple. Welcome to life. Notice John reproved them sharply for their smug self-righteousness. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Wow. He spoke with a complete authority as God's prophet. I say to you. Jesus will say this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard this has been said, but I say to you the ultimate authority. The implication is they were wrong. They were wrong. That's difficult when you have been raised by your parents and you go tell your parents, uh, Mom, Dad, you guys need to be born again. Because you're sinners. <gasps> Not to tell a person that you don't know. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. You're going to go to hell, man. You know, sweat. But your mom, your dad, your grandma. Hmm. He told them God was not interested in merely creating national Jews. He could do that from these stones. No big deal. God wanted to make them children of God through repentance. See, people want to be children of God or say they are. They want to say they're going to heaven. They want to die like a saint, but they want to live like the devil. 
Funerals. More lies are spoken at funerals than anywhere else about people. I don't touch the stiff. I just preach Christ Jesus crucified. Funerals are not for the dead. They're for the living. To warn them, you're going to be here one day. Think about it. Where are you going? Notice John pronounced the impending judgment of God over their lives. If they did not repent, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, therefore every tree which does not hear or bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is singular. God is the judge over their lives. The axe is laid on the root, the life source, referring to the final judgment. When God lays the axe to the root, it's final judgment. You've gone too far. When he prunes you, you belong to him. Okay? The trees are plural. Jew and Gentile. That's the crowd. There is no exception. Jew, Gentile, every tree bearing fruit of repentance becomes a child of God. Every tree that does not, then it's cut down. Destined to fall under the judgment of God, thrown into the fire, indicating the urgency to repent. As if John the Baptist was preaching, today it's just as urgent, if not more urgent. We're 2,000 years closer to the Lord coming for his church. Notice verse 11 and 12, the description of John, of those who do repent and those who do not repent then. In verse 11, John indicated the distinction between himself and the Messiah, Jesus. Um, His ministry was to prepare the way of the Messiah. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. It's emphatic in the Greek, making the difference between him and the Messiah. He was inferior to the Messiah, Jesus. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He was the servant of the coming Messiah. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Servants carry sandals. He said, I'm not even worthy to do that. He offered an outward ritual of water baptism as evidence of inward reality in faith. But... The Messiah Jesus would bring about the inward enabling of their faith to transform their lives. Listen to his words. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I can baptize in water. But Jesus is the one that baptized with the Holy Spirit. No one else. There's one article for both the Holy Spirit and fire indicating that the new life is one here. You're born again and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, refining you as you're obeying, you're repenting constantly, you're allowing him to make you more like Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase, right? Notice John explained people fall into one of two categories, the saved and the lost in verse 12. The imagery is illustrated by the separation of the threshing of wheat here, uh, his winnow and fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. 
As you know, the threshing floor would be up in a high place where the wind blew at a flat area. They would throw the wheat up after they stomped it or threshed it, and that we would break the husk, and then the wind would blow away the shell, and then the wheat comes down, separating it. The application is the separation of the saved from the lost. It says, and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. The wheat represents the believer who will be gathered into the barn to live eternally with God. The shaft represents the unbeliever who will be eternally separated from God in punishment. In fact, the phrase unquenchable fire, when I looked up the word unquenchable, is the words asbestos. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> It'll kill you. It refers to the eternal fire to punish the damned who have rejected the gospel and refused to repent, and therefore they end up in the lake of fire. People don't like that today. Politically correctness of the church. That's making judgments. That's offending people. Yeah. Suck it up, buttercup. It's just the way it is. In fact, Jesus made, and he will make mentions of that in the Sermon on the Mount, about the Valley of Hinnom, because that's where they would put all the trash that got rubbish, dead animals, and even cadavers out there, and the fire was never quenched. And it was a picture of what like a fire would be. The worm never dies. You know, one day, this guy was talking to Satan, Satan talking to him, but he didn't know it. And, um, and Satan is saying, um, 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 you know, I don't believe all this. He said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in sin. And, and, and Satan says, oh, that's, that's okay, it's okay. You know, um, I don't believe in hell. It's okay. I don't even believe in, in the devil. He says, that's okay. See, you cannot believe in any of that and still end up in hell. But if you're going to end up in heaven, you have to believe very specific things. You have to believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God, who died in your place and rose from the dead and sat to the right hand of the Father. The only one that can save you. Wow. Very specific. There are many people who believe they're going to heaven based on their morality or ethical lifestyle because they've been raised in church or they've been in a Christian home. Or because even been baptized as infants, um, whether they were Catholic sprinkled when they were babies or even adult and came to be baptized at a church. Or based on their good works they have done, but none of that will get them in. Or some even people say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm an American, I know. I mean, I mean, I don't think anybody believes that now, but they did at one time. <laughs> um, listen to what Titus says. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which he has done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us absolutely abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Through regeneration being born again. There are so many people going to church that the pastors do not warn. They do not warn about judgment to come or their need of repentance. Listen to Jesus, what he says about them. 
they are lost themselves. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the heavens, uh, the kingdom of heaven, against men, for you neither go in yourself nor do you allow those who entering in to go in. Matthew twenty-three thirteen. Woe is judgment. They're not going in and they're not telling people how to go in. They're all about money, some of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation or judgment. Matthew 23, 14. That still applies today, ladies and gentlemen. They want to raise up disciples after themselves, not after Jesus. Listen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Matthew twenty-five fifteen. You're ungodly, and they become ten times ungodly, <laughs> worse than you. Wow. Jesus spoke more about hell and the lake of fire than heaven, because it's a horrible place. It's eternal. And condition. And listen who will spend their eternity in lake of fire. Listen carefully. Revelation 19.20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worketh signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two are cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Revelation 19.20. The devil, Revelation 20.10, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, the false prophet, are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is not annihilation. You don't cease to exist. It's not just, it's forever and ever. Well, I can't believe in a God like that. Well, he's really worried about you, let me tell you. He's really biting his nails over your concern and your opinion. No, he's not. Revelation 20:14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. One more. Revelation 20:15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How do you get into the book of life? You must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. When we were over um, in Turkey, um, Trudy and the ladies went into the bazaar to do some shopping. I was waiting for them at one of the gates, and there was a merchant, Arab merchant there, a Muslim guy who came up to me and said, Hey, who, are you American? Yeah. He said, well, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a Bible teacher. He goes, Oh, a religious man. I go, No, I'm just a Christian. And he starts telling me about, you know, all this stuff and all that. I said, I said, Listen, you ever go shooting? He goes, Shooting? Yeah. You target practice? Yeah. I said, Do you aim at the bullseye or the outside rings? He says, bullseye. I said, Muhammad's not the bullseye. Christian's not the bullseye. Jesus Christ is the bullseye. You're shooting at the wrong target. He walked away. <laughs> wow. The identity of false and true repentance by Jesus or by John here is distinguishing those separated from God for all eternity and those who will spend all eternity with God. Straightforward, ladies and gentlemen. No candy coating. With all the compassion we preach, desiring that you repent and not be lost. Matthew has given to us a vivid picture of the ministry of John here through the threefold lens. The identity of John is a prophet of God. 
the identity of the people hearing John are sinners needing to repent to be one with God. And the identity that falls through repentance by John distinguished by separation to be separated from God for all eternity or with him. One of the two. Where are you this morning? If you haven't made a decision to repent, I pray you repent. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. And Lord, we pray for those on the radio. We pray for those on the internet. We pray that your word would go forth in power, Lord, to do what it accomplishes through your word, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. As you're praying, if you are here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet, or maybe you're out there and and somewhere in the world on the radio. This is your prayer of repentance. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, this is your prayer of repentance. And he's going to forgive you and make you his child right now by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.